<clears throat> Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, and reading verse, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And our subject this evening is the mountain of the Lord. Well, we continue uh, in our new series in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And uh, we looked at the first chapter last week. And the first chapter was, uh, just to remind you, detailing the uh, rebellion of uh, Israel, of the Lord's people. They had rebelled against God. Uh, that's uh, the first uh, part of the prophecy of Isaiah, how the people uh, were found in rebellion against the Lord who had delivered them and had done so much for them. And uh, while well, we considered that in the second verse of chapter 1, I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. And what was worse, and we considered this last week, is that the people were outwardly Religious, but uh, God looked upon uh, their religion and uh, hated their sacrifices and their offerings, their outward religion, because their hearts were insincere. They were worldly, they were self-centered, and uh, uh, yet the Lord uh, calls them to uh, come back to him. And there were those wonderful words uh, that we considered from uh, verse 16 in chapter 1, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. This is repentance. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. We replace the evil that we did as uh, unbelievers, as sinners, with good, doing well, serving the Lord, honoring him. We must replace uh, those uh, wicked deeds with those things which are good. And uh, well, all of these uh, things the people were called to. And then verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, though you deserve to be put to death for your sins, and even though your sins, they are murderous, as it were, you have blood on your hands. Even though your sins be as scarlet, well, they shall be as white as snow. There is forgiveness, there is washing and cleansing. The sins of the Lord's people can be blotted out if they turn to him. Verse 19, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And uh, so this is uh, the great message to the people of Judah. Uh, there is uh, this message of rebuke and promise. And this is really the pattern 
of the opening chapters in Isaiah, particularly the first six chapters, always this message, rebuke and uh, promise. And we will see this uh, even in the passages that we will look at this evening. We're going to actually uh, look at three chapters this evening, chapters 2, 3 and uh, 4. And there will be much for us to consider. Uh, but we will see this pattern uh, even this evening. Rebuke and uh, promise, which is, after all, the pattern of the gospel. We are given the rebuke. We are uh, shown the, uh, the unsightly nature of our sins. We are condemned for our sins. But then there is that promise. That promise that if we repent and have faith, we shall be forgiven. So this is the nature of the gospel message, rebuke and promise. And it's the nature of Isaiah's prophecy in these uh, early chapters. So chapter 2, well, it really begins with uh, promise rather than rebuke. Uh, and uh, by the time we finish in chapter 4, we'll return to the promise. Uh, but the promise in chapter 2, well, it speaks of a wonderful a glorious mountain, the mountain of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, verse 2, in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Now, just to say that these words uh, are uh, repeated almost exactly the same in the book of the prophet uh, Micah chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. You don't need to turn there but just to mention that uh, because uh, uh, Micah of course was uh, a prophet uh, who was contemporary with Isaiah and there's much debate as to uh, who was inspired to put down these words first. Was it Isaiah or was it Micah? Does Micah copy from Isaiah or does uh, Isaiah borrow from uh, Micah? Well, uh, no uh, commentator is entirely sure on that, but you will see these same words in Micah chapter 4, just to mention it. But uh, these uh, words, when we look at the details, are wonderful. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. Now, perhaps before we consider what the mountain of the Lord is, it may be profitable first just to consider what is meant by the last days. Now, I know many of you will know this, but it's good to remind ourselves what the last days mean. The last days, generally speaking, uh, in the book of Isaiah, is referring to the gospel age, the gospel age, which begins with the birth of Christ in Bethlehem and ends with Christ's second coming, which is uh, yet to come, of course. So uh, the last days, they speak about that whole time. Some people just think that the last days refer only to the very last days before Christ comes again, his second coming, but that's not uh, accurate. The last days generally speak of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. The last days uh, are that time between. Uh, the comings of Christ. So it's the whole of the gospel age, the last days. But we also have a phrase which is synonymous, which means the same thing that uh, occurs time and time again 
in uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah, and it's synonymous. It means the same as the last days. And that phrase is, in that day, in that day. Now, this phrase occurs seven times uh, from uh, chapter 2 to chapter 4. For example, verse 11 in chapter 2, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone should be exalted in that day. That's the phrase that is repeated. And then verse 17, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be made low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And this again is speaking of the gospel age. And uh, uh, when we read in that day, sometimes it will be a day of judgment, but not always. Sometimes when we read in that day, there is great blessing. So uh, in chapter 4, for example, in verse 2, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. So when we read in that day, it uh, can mean a day of blessing, a time of blessing, or a time of judgment. And well, again, when we think of the gospel age, well, the gospel age does have that nature. The gospel age is a blessing for those who repent and have faith. But it's also a judgment upon those who will not repent. That is the nature of the gospel age. It is a blessing, but it is also a judgment. And of course, uh, if we think of the very last day, the day of judgment that is to come, that will most certainly have that dual nature. A day of blessing, of course, for those who trust in the Lord, but it's also a day of judgment for those who do not trust in the Lord. So we will see this. In that day, it will speak of judgment and it will also speak of blessing because there's that twofold nature of the gospel and that twofold nature of the very last day. And uh, so these things, uh, they are worth mentioning the last days and in that day, which we shall uh, read time and time again, really they are uh, often speaking of the gospel age, although I ought to mention that they can also be applied to, uh, to Judah in the time of Isaiah or uh, uh, in the time following Isaiah, the prophecies concerning Babylon and so on. Uh, we can apply them to those also. They have that immediate fulfillment. But these things will be clearer as we go through. But the last days, the gospel age, and the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Well, this is a glorious mountain. And we read later in verse 3 that this mountain is referred to as Zion. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Mount Zion was uh, the mountain upon which the temple in Jerusalem was located. 
So it was a very special mountain. It was very precious. But actually, it was so precious that uh, uh, the mountain, Mount Zion, came to uh, actually be the name for the temple itself at certain times. The temple itself would be called Zion, and even Jerusalem itself would be called Zion, and even the Lord's people would at times be known as Zion. And this, of course, has uh, interpreted or carried on into the gospel age. We have hymns, New Testament hymns, gospel age hymns that speak of the Lord's people as Zion. And uh, so uh, when we read the, uh, the mountain of the Lord and Zion, well, really it speaks of the Lord's people. So in the gospel age, when we think of the mountain of the Lord as it is being presented here, well, it speaks of the church and it speaks of everything that the church represents. It speaks of the gospel. This will be the mountain of the Lord, the church, the gospel. It will be above all other mountains. It will be exalted. Why is that? Well, because Christ will come. Christ will come to Jerusalem. He will uh, uh, be God with us, the incarnate God. He will visit his people. He will uh, suffer and die, of course, in Jerusalem, outside the city wall. He will rise again. And the gospel would go forth from Jerusalem, from the mountain of the Lord, from Mount Zion. The gospel will go out. And well, this gospel message will be exalted above everything else, every other philosophy, every other religion. People from all nations will come to this mountain. Verse 3, many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And even the end of verse 2, all nations shall flow unto it. There's nothing like this. This is why it shall be so great. This is why it shall be so exalted, because this is the gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So many will be saved. So many will find the way to God, the only way to God. And verse 4, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Well, the gospel brings peace, peace between God and men, but also between men and men. And well, we were speaking about this not so long ago, how the Christian church brings people together who otherwise would be enemies and brings people together who otherwise would be strangers and would want to fight one another or take up arms against one another. And the picture here is instead of taking up arms, they will take up plowshares, or uh, that speaks of the cutting blades of a plow. So instead of going to war, they will go to reap a harvest. They will be sowers, sowers of gospel seed, those who ordinarily would be antagonistic toward one another at each, other, at each other's throats, they will now be working together for the gospel cause. 
sowing gospel seed. This is what the gospel has done. This will all come out of Jerusalem. So this was hope for Judah and Jerusalem. There will be difficult times for them, very difficult times, exceedingly difficult times. But the gospel age will come from Mount Zion. There will be that wonderful message. Christ will come and there will be salvation out of Zion for the whole world. So uh, this is the wonderful mountain of the Lord. But uh, uh, in verse 5, the exhortation is given, O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Those in Judah, walk in the light of the Lord. You are those who have uh, the oracles of God, the Lord has blessed you. The Lord has saved you. Walk in the light of the Lord. But sadly, they have forsaken the house of Jacob. Verse 6, Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. Well, this is uh, where the rebuke now comes in. The people of Judah, they have really, they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten their identity. They've forsaken the house of Jacob. And uh, they have let the world in. They are replenished from the east. There seems to have been an influx of uh, people from other places, from the east, from Syria, from Mesopotamia. And uh, they have brought all their occult practices, their soothsaying, their witchcraft, their astrology. They've brought all these things in. And uh, now there is uh, abounding in Judah, well, the children of foreigners. And uh, a new generation is being raised up in that place, not of the house of Jacob, but of the house of people from elsewhere. That's what's happening in Judah. And verse 7, Their land also is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Well, the people of Judah, they seem to esteem silver and gold higher than uh, their God. They've put their trust in men, men of the world. And uh, this is, of course, very sad. And the idols, verse 8, their land also is polluted, full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. But the Lord must deal with this rebellion. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The Lord is warning the people. He will deal with them. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. The great problem, of course, as it so often is in any apostate society, is pride. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. This will be the theme for the next few verses. 
Verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up and he shall be brought low. And then we have a, a description of things that will be brought low. The cedars of Lebanon, all the high things that are high and lifted up, the oaks of Bashan, the high mountains, every high tower, verse 15, every fenced wall, even the great ships of Tarshish, with all their prowess and all their commercial value, all these things, these worldly things, they're all going to be humbled. And verse 17, just like all of these things, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be made low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Well, that's just a reminder, isn't it, of that which we often uh, speak of, that pride and the Christian faith, pride and a close walk with the Lord just cannot coexist. There is no place for pride when we draw near to the Lord. We must be made low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Well, again, we can think of the, the day of judgment, the pride of men, the pride of the atheist. Well, it will all be uh, battered down. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down and they will go and hide. There's uh, a lot of uh, language here of those who are going into the rocks and to the mountains to hide. Verse 19, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. We read that in the book of Revelation. We even read that at the very start of the uh, scriptures, Adam and Eve, when they had sinned against God. They tried to hide themselves, but they couldn't hide themselves from God. And so it will be for all at the very end of time. They will attempt to hide themselves, but there is no hiding place. And the Lord, well, he ariseth to shake terribly the earth, the wrath of God. You know, sometimes when we see the the anger of people against God. If sometimes you knock on people's doors and they're furious that you, you've troubled them and so on and, and they're shouting. Well, sometimes you have to read a passage such as this and you realize that God is a lot angrier at them. A lot angrier at them for their sin against him. And so, well, they can be very angry with us, but one day God will appear and he will shake terribly the earth. Their anger is nothing compared to the anger, the wrath of God that shall be revealed upon them at the very end of time. So these things, well, they are solemn and the idols, of course, he shall utterly abolish all the things that are worshipped. But let's move into uh, chapter 3. And I'll uh, try to be brief with these things. Now in this chapter. These words can apply. To what will happen to the southern kingdom of Judah. Because what we see here. Is uh, the desolation of a city. Where everything good has been stripped. And we know that when the Babylonians. 
when Nebuchadnezzar comes in 586 BC, and even before that, before the final siege, he will take away all that is good from Jerusalem. So uh, we have here in verse 1, there is uh, a lack, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. In verse 1, first they will start to lack bread, but then uh, the military will soon disappear and the judges, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient. And uh, the military, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the craftsman, they'll all be taken. And this is exactly what will happen. Jerusalem will be stripped of all their riches and the people shall be oppressed and there will be a lack of of leadership. Verse 6, when a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father, saying, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler, and let this ruin be under thy hand. Well, Jerusalem has sunk to such a low estate. People are so impoverished that the only person who is nominated to be the ruler is the one who is, uh, well, not qualified for the job, but the one who's actually least deprived, the one who seems to have clothing or a coat. Thou hast clothing, that's your only qualification. It's better than any of us, they're saying, we're so poor, but you seem to have just a little bit more, you're the only one who can rule us. But even he doesn't want to rule, verse 7, in that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be an healer. For in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. This is what uh, Jerusalem will be like. But when we read this, of course, this is uh, also a summary of how God judges a society. And uh, a sign of his displeasure against a society. All that is good, all that is valuable, all that is of true merit will be taken away, will be watered down. There's no shame. Verse 9, the show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. They're not hiding their sin anymore. They're uh, proud of it. Again, it's pride. They're shameless. This is a judgment against uh, society. When society becomes like this, you know that the Lord is displeased. And then in verse 12, we have uh, these uh, intriguing words. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. Well, this is, well, very uh, interesting. Children are their oppressors. And women rule over them. Now, of course, women are very precious, very important, particularly in the church. Women are made in the image of God. Their souls in the sight of God are not inferior to men. But there is, of course, that order, that order that has been established that uh, the man, the male, is to be at the head of the family to be at the head of society. And if that uh, role is reversed, well, then there is decline. Then there is decline. And really what this is saying 
is that uh, there is this role reversal. There is the predominance of, uh, of uh, women and of those things that are feminine in society. Women rule over them. And this is uh, uh, something that is causing this great decline in society. Women rule over them. And well, sometimes when we look at the, uh, the world around us, it seems that this is the way that things are. Women rule over them. The, uh, the emasculation of uh, men and uh, the erosion of the traditional family structure and so on. Women ruling over them. If there are men, if there are male leaders or men who are esteemed, so often they are assessed by uh, how similar they are to women, or whether they have female characteristics or values. Are they in touch with their feminine side? Women rule over them, and that influence is seen in every sphere, the media, education, and so on. And uh, this is a, a role reversal. And this is contributing to the decline here. And children are their oppressors. Children are mentioned here. And this perhaps reflects a, a society that uh, is uh, uh, overly concerned with the youth. Again, we see this nowadays. What do the youth think? The elderly, the middle-aged, well, they don't know anything. There is uh, nothing to be gained from them. No wisdom that we can glean from them. It's uh, only uh, the youth. And children are their oppressors. Well, it can also speak of an infantile society. An infantile society. One that is uh, centered on feelings and uh, sentimentality. One that cannot uh, really think deeply about anything. A child is... Uh, is somebody who doesn't really uh, have that uh, capacity, that capacity to think deeply about various issues. It's just surface-level sentimentality for most of the time for children. It's feelings-based. And uh, when children are uh, the oppressors, well, all of society is like that. Society doesn't have the ability to think deeply about things to have wisdom. And so these things, well, they, uh, they characterize this kind of decline. Children are their oppressors and women rule over them. And well, again, the women are mentioned later on in verse 16. Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. They are so uh, weighed down with ornaments and uh, uh, jewelry and so on. They can only make uh, small steps with their feet. That's what is meant by mincing. And making a tinkling with their feet. Well, they have so, many, so much ornamentation around them. Uh, it makes a noise wherever they go. But there's the judgment, verse 17. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. Baldness will uh, afflict 
the daughters of Zion. The Lord will discover their secret parts. Really, that's speaking about nakedness. So those who previously were shameless, now they're being made to be ashamed. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet, feet and their cores and their round tires like the moon. And then we have a number of verses that speaks of all the things that they would wear. And again, uh, this is uh, a, a judgment upon society or a sign of a society that is in decline, so materialistic and so concerned with the outward appearance. In verse 24, and it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. Everything will be reversed, and so on. And, uh, well, the women themselves will suffer because uh, uh, they have sought to reverse the general order of things. But as we close, we go into chapter 4 and verse 2. And here now is the promise. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. The branch of the Lord. We shall see this once again in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, the branch of the Lord. This is a messianic title. And uh, really, it refers back to the promise made to David that uh, his throne would never end. His descendants, as it were, would always be on the throne. But what would happen to David's throne? What would happen to Judah and Jerusalem? It will be cut down. They will all go into Babylon. This tree will be but a stump. And yet out of that stump, there will come a branch, a shoot, a tender shoot. That will be the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. This is the gospel age. Christ is the branch. This is his reign. There will be true holiness for those who believe. Everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Does that not remind us of those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, who have that right to live in the heavenly Jerusalem, those who are washed and cleansed, when the Lord shall have washed away, verse 4, the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. This is very clear gospel terminology. Washing, a way of sin. In verse 5, the Lord will create in every dwelling place of Mount Zion, upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. Well, so much to uh, 
to consider in these verses. This language is uh, reminiscent of the book of Exodus, the, uh, the cloud by day and uh, the shining of a flaming fire by night. This is how the Israelites in the wilderness knew the presence of the living God. And uh, the gospel age, well, Christ will be with us all the time. A glory, a defense. There shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. Protection and preservation. That is the promise that we see here. And well, we considered on the Lord's Day evening how the Lord's people, they are protected. Their inheritance is reserved in heaven for them and they will be preserved. Their inheritance is safe and they, as the inheritors, they are also safe. They will surely claim their inheritance. And these same principles are here before us in Isaiah Christ is our protection. Christ is the place of refuge. He will be our defense, our shelter. And so there is nothing to fear. This is the promise for Judah. But there was also rebuke. And well, we rejoice in the promises of God toward Judah, toward us as the church, as the believers of Christ and in Christ, but we also must learn these uh, lessons. We take on board all that went wrong in Judah, all the characteristics of an ungodly society, and we honor the Lord by doing that which is pleasing in his sight. Well, may the Lord bless these things to us.